welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with J.D. Trout, who is Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at Loyola University in Chicago. His new book, Wondrous Truths, The Improbable Triumph of Modern Science, is just out from Oxford University Press. The social practice we call science has had spectacular success in explaining the natural world since the 17th century, and that success shows no sign of abating. Advanced mathematics and other precursors of modern science were not all originally from or unique to Europe, but it was in Europe that the revolutionary advances in scientific knowledge began, where Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, and others came up with theories that got modern physics and chemistry off the ground. Why Europe, and why then, and why do the answers to these questions uh, have implications for scientific as well as philosophical views of the relation between scientific theories and the phenomena they explain? In his new book, Trout mounts a spirited defense of the claim that the best explanation of the rise of science in the 17th century Europe is that Newton and others got lucky. They happened to come up with versions of pre-existing ideas that were just right enough, just true enough, to explain just enough of the world, and that was enough to get the ball rolling. Trout defends the scientific realist view that scientific theories are successful because they are, by and large, true, and not merely predictively accurate. He also sharply distinguishes the psychology of explanation, the aha feeling of understanding, from the truth of an explanation, arguing that while a feeling of understanding may be a useful heuristic, we can experience that feeling of being satisfied with an explanation when an explanation is false, and that conversely, there may be theories that are true that we will never really feel that we understand. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, J.D. Trout. Are you there? I am. How are you doing? Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks very much. I'm glad to have you here to talk about your new book, Wondrous Truths, The Improbable Triumph of Modern Science, which, I mean, as the uh, as the subtitle makes clear, it's, it, it's sort of about how um, the rise of science in Europe in the 17th century with Newton and, and, and other scientists of that day um, was actually a, a, a bit of serendipity. It was sort of, a, we lucked out in a way. Um, but it's also an interesting exploration of the idea of the psychology of explanation, the feeling of aha and of understanding, and how that relates to uh, the idea of uh, what we understand actually being true um, and so by that means to the whole idea and debate of scientific realism um, and the nature of explanation and the idea of explanation as being ontic, uh, which is which is not a terribly popular view from what I understand. So it'll be interesting to know how you defend that particular view of explanation. So before we get to the actual content of the book, can you say something about your your background as a as a philosopher? 
and um, how you got to this particular topic and, and to the writing of the book. Oh, sure. Depends on how far back you want me to go. I was always kind of interested in philosophical questions, having been raised as uh, a Catholic kid and thought a lot about, uh, you know, potential intellectual frailties of uh, the doctrine of your religion. And, we, you know, we always had parish priests around for one reason or other who seemed to like to argue. So I would argue a lot with them. And uh, I was usually looking for loopholes of one kind in uh, doctrine, you know, some way that you could get into heaven without really working hard or, <laughs> um, you know, at least get out of purgatory. And they usually indulge that kind of argument. And then in, in public high school, I had a teacher who happened to have been trained by the Jesuits. And he was really the one who introduced a lot of uh, kids in the class to, you know, really traditional philosophical arguments of Hobbes and Locke and I really liked Anselm's ontological argument when I was, you know, 15, 16, and uh, started reading a lot of philosophy, but I was interested in everything. Um, and then in college, uh, I studied a lot of different topics, including philosophy of history, but also um, psychology, geology, I was really interested in. Uh, and I took a psychology course that... Um, did a lot of hands-on experimental demonstrations of sensory effects and perceptual effects. And a lot of what we were doing there seemed to me well-grounded in a way that a lot of the stuff that I had done in philosophy of mind was not. Uh, so it became harder and harder for me to see what philosophers were doing at a kind of intuitive um, and anecdotal uh, basis to be a really firm basis for um, arguments, at least about the nature of the mind. Uh, and so uh, when I went to graduate school at Cornell, I had kind of resolved to be at a place where the philosophy faculty would allow you to take whatever psychology courses you wanted or any courses in the sciences, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it was a time at Cornell where you know, Dick Boyd and Sidney Shoemaker and um, Robert Stallnaker were uh, my committee members. And I had Frank Kyle, who was a psychologist on my committee. Uh, and I took a lot of psychology coursework with Frank and with, uh, at the time, Roger Shepard was visiting from uh, Stanford. Um, and a lot of the questions that I had were philosophically related, but the psychological um uh, phenomena were so gripping to me that I always approached them kind of as a psychologist, I guess. Um, and I was able to, to follow two careers in a way at the outset of, um, you know, my first jobs in philosophy. Um, but I was always interested in history. I was always interested in, in the history of science. And the history of science to me was like what anthropology was to a lot of people. You know, it just transported you to some exotic land where people had, from your point of view, bizarre beliefs that, you know, seemed fantastic. And um, so I studied a lot of history of science and had um, an NSF predoctoral fellow in history and philosophy of science uh, to um, linger over that material uh, while I was uh, doing experimental work as I completed my philosophy dissertation. Okay. Um, and then this particular book, did this come out of prior work? or? Well, um, it came out of my interest in realism. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, when I was uh, in graduate school, Cornell was an easy place to be a realist. It was a, a nice place to be if you were a scientific realist. And I had written uh, a book uh, in the late 90s that took up the question of whether you could be a scientific realist about the social, <clears throat> excuse me, the social and behavioral sciences. Mm-hmm. And whether there was a robust version of realism or a more modest version of realism that could be supported by what you know, limited and constrained successes we could point to in theories of vision and theories of uh, speech production and so on. Um, and in fact, in, in that book, I looked at a lot of methodological issues um, uh, of statistical significance testing. And uh, a lot of those issues are alive now because of the replication project that is currently underway in psychology Right. to examine the fidelity of a lot of um, uh, putatively durable uh, psychology findings. Right. Uh, so, it, it, so it came from a long um, interest that I had in scientific realism and the justification for belief in theoretical phenomena, mm-hmm. um, in the role of the history of science as evidence for particular philosophical theses about the rationality of scientific method. Okay. So, well, I mean, it, that, that all does kind of come together. I mean, the, the book does, you know, it, it does bring together various supporting positions, right? One that you mentioned, scientific realism. You know, that's, that's an old debate, um, which, uh, which, which I want to talk about. But you, you start with, again, this, this mix of psychology and philosophy that has, that has sort of characterized your professional career. You, you start with a look at the psychology of explanation. That's probably the best way I can put it, which is, which is not a, a uh, it's, it's sort of a new area, I guess, of, of inquiry, at least, at least to me. And you explore the sense of that this experience we have or sense we have of understanding something and the, the satisfaction that we can feel at, you know, reaching that aha moment. So why don't we start with with your discussion of the psychology of explanation? Um, what is what is this sense of understanding? You know what what is it that that's going on when we feel that okay we've reached an explanation that that somehow is is satisfying to us? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I guess I should begin by saying that um, the psychology of explanation is a kind of emerging topic in psychology as well as in philosophy. And, you know, it's um, owed in part to, you know, figures like uh, Tanya Lombroso, mm-hmm. um, you know, who, uh, you know, looks at the cognitive science of explanation. A lot of, uh, and a lot of people in, in her lab and in her orbit. Um, uh, and, you know, in writing Wondrous Truths, I was kind of reacting to um, a lot of uh, philosophy of science uh, publication that increasingly became like inside baseball, where there were a set of narrow issues that people were interested in, that people would put a sort of twist on, and that was their own view. And I wanted this to be for a broader audience. Um, And uh, so one way I approached the issue was that, you know, explanation is a really important feature of science, but it's also a feature that's familiar to ordinary people in their ordinary lives. There are reasons why people accept the explanations that they do. And those explanations aren't necessarily very arcane. But what we usually look for when we're deciding whether to accept an explanation 
is a sense of understanding that washes over us. So it's a kind of phenomenological experience that conveys a sense of coherence or a case, a sense of familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we look for that cue when we're trying to decide whether this is an explanation that we're going to accept. That's not to say that we don't accept explanations that don't carry that feeling. We just may be more deliberate about it. Um, so it, it is a kind of sense of, of um, rightness or coherence. Uh, psychologists have a lot of terms for this. Psychologists have studied things like um, feelings of rightness or feeling of knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they look at the fidelity of that feeling as a cue to, you, to whether you've gotten it right. So feelings of overconfidence uh, or feelings of um, hindsight that lead to the inevitability feeling that you're right. Um, is oftentimes what drives both ordinary folks and scientists accept the explanations that they do. So here's the sort of central puzzle that I uh, uh, try to face in the beginning of the book. If the sense of understanding that we get isn't a reliable cue to truth, right? so that the sense of understanding that you get from a good explanation could be the same kind of feeling that you get from a bad explanation. Just ask people for, you know, medieval figures for the feeling they got from, you know, bloodletting explanations. Right. Right. Um, Then how is it that we ever are able to orient ourselves toward approximately true theories for a realist? That's a problem. Right. A realist wants to explain uh, why uh, science has been as theoretically successful as it appears to have been and why it's had the instrumental successes that it's had. And if what drives us is a sense of understanding Mm -hmm. and that sense of understanding is not a reliable cue to truth, Mm -hmm. how do we get oriented toward it? Right. Although wouldn't wouldn't anti-realist have a, a sort of a similar problem, even if they don't talk about truth, they would just talk about you know how do we orient ourselves towards towards theories that are more predictive, you know, predictively robust. Um, you yeah, can I get think... the satisfaction, and 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 it'll be predictively maybe enough, um, but the sense of satisfaction can similarly kind of outrun the the predictability. Right. I mean, for a social constructivist, it depends upon, you know, what your metaphysical scruples are. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to proliferate uh, different theories and insist that, you know, you could have everything that you wanted, like the current science of the time or the most, you know, the current successful uh, medical treatments of the time and you know, engineering solutions at the time, no matter what your metaphysical view, um, then, uh, you know, explanation may not be doing all that much epistemic work. Mm-hmm. And, and a constructive empiricist like Van Frossen, I think, has less difficulty explaining some of the phenomena that I think realists have difficulty explaining because a constructive empiricist can be more permissive about uh, uh, the empirical adequacy of multiple theories. So mm-hmm. if you're right. only looking for 
approximate truth at the observable level, there might be multiple theories that would provide that. And if you think that's enough to explain instrumental successes, uh, then uh, it may not depend on getting explanations right to have that instrumental success. Okay, good. Um, so, I mean, one of, as you just mentioned, I mean, we do have this, um, what you call a fluency heuristic, um, this idea that uh, we have a, a sort of a phenomenological feeling um, that can drive acceptance, even even when a theory is is uh, is bad in the in the sense that it, it doesn't orient us towards truth. It it feels good, but but it's but it's not true. Right. So how 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 do realists sort of bridge that gap? Well, I think you know it, realists are realists about everything, hopefully, and so they're realists about the findings of mature psychological sciences as well, and in uh, you know, um, replicable and robust psychological effects that have been demonstrated about fluency show that we use it as a cue to truth, and under certain circumstances, it works just fine. Um, you know, maybe those circumstances don't involve a lot of theoretical stress, but, you know, if you want uh, some of the research, in fact, on uh, the epistemology of testimony makes this point nicely. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no problem in deferring to uh, another person when you haven't personally observed something, uh, as long as the stakes aren't high and there's no special reason to suppose that they're um, being deceptive or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, uh, in the psychological research on fluency, what you find is that people export this fluency cue to all sorts of uh, domains where it turns out to be treacherous. So, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, we tend to process information that's familiar more quickly with less error. Um, uh, that is when it's on simple identification tasks. But people will also, for example, um, say that a statement is more likely to be true when it rhymes hmm. and rhyming statements have a certain kind of fluency to them. So uh, people are, uh, people report that statements like uh, birds of a feather flock together is more likely to be true than statements like, you know, birds of a feather flock conjointly <laughs> or um, they uh, suppose that is more likely to be true when you say, um, what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals, compared to uh, um, the non-rhyming correlate. So that fluency carries a kind of hedonic marking, a marking that gives us a kind of positive feeling. Um, and there are you know, similar kinds of fluency effects in related areas like we show aesthetic preferences for objects that are familiar, um, even not just for familiar animals, say, you know, very prototypical animals of a category are more quickly and more reliably identified, but also artifacts like watch faces are found to be more aesthetically pleasing that are more familiar. Um, so we, we process that information more fluently. Uh, what I argue in the book is that the same seems to be true of explanations. We plump for explanations that are familiar based on our background theories, 
And when people ask, well, why do we have this reliance on fluency? Uh, I suggest that, you know, one possibility is that, you know, we're, we're arguably neophobic in a certain way. Um, and humans are thought to be neophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're slightly afraid of new things. And, you know, one reason for that might be that, um, you know, the preference for the familiar is that what we're familiar with hasn't killed us yet. Mm-hmm. So we show a preference for things that are a little bit familiar and it slightly enhances our processing speed. It causes us to embrace those uh, um, those uh, settings a little bit more fervently. Um, and so we stick to familiar views. We're a little bit more conservative in the metrics we choose when we evaluate the plausibility or the credibility of particular hypotheses. Um, and, uh, you know, all at once, then, the fluency heuristic explains both the sense of understanding we get, that is, that positively hedonically marked feeling, and it explains um, where we might be getting it wrong when the progress of science uh, delivers us to a point where uh, we require arcane knowledge, where those ordinary heuristic cues may break down. Okay, and and I mean, this seems to be a very pressing issue right now in terms of uh, in science communication, in terms of acceptance of theories like global warming and you know things that might clash with what we are familiar with and reluctant to um, to accept new evidence of you know things that are happening that conflict with with our prior beliefs oh absolutely and 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 i think actually the ontic account of explanation that i talk about in the book in the middle part of the book can illuminate some of what goes on in policy and in political settings in the in the case of global warming um you know you find members of congress finding it very difficult to accept the idea of global warming not just because their beliefs are motivated and they're compromised by uh, lobbyists and campaign funders, which is no doubt true as well. Right. But also, you know, whenever it gets cold, they're less likely to suppose that there's such a thing as global warming. And, <laughs> and you know, that's an effect that's found even in experimental settings. But you don't ordinarily find grown adults arguing uh, against global warming by, you know, throwing a snowball on the congressional floor, which is one thing that happened in one of the science committee uh, meetings. But one cause of that level of dispute is that it's difficult for people to imagine, even educated people, that sometimes there are arcane facts that resolve or that would resolve these disputes that they can't know about, that their training doesn't allow them to understand. And a regular high school and even college education does not prepare you to appreciate the kinds of details that establish theses like global warming. So uh, let me let me just explore before I do want to get to the ontic uh, explanation which you just mentioned. Um, but w- one of the interesting things that I thought about with the the way you distinguished sort of the the psychology of explanation the the the, the the reasons for acceptance, the familiarity, and, and so forth. Um, 
two things kind of occurred to me. One was um, if, as I'm sure you remember, uh, Thomas Kuhn was was very, very sharply criticized when when he argued that that theory acceptance um, was not was not rational, or at least that was what he was accused of, of claiming that it was just a matter of mob psychology. Um, and so I was just wondering, uh, on the one hand, if acceptance, on your view, is uh, is is a similar sort of uh, non-rational feature, maybe of of the individual, um, if if not the mob. And another another thing I thought about was, well, if 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 we're realists, um, then wouldn't we be better off trying to um, you know, kind of set our computers, as in fact some people have tried to do, to find the best theories, to generate, maybe generate lots of different um, possibilities and, and sort of do a generate and test kind of procedure, where you don't have this, you don't need a fluency heuristic to point you in the right direction towards truth. Um, you, have a, you have a computer which doesn't need that, um, and they can point us to the truth a lot better. So you, you avoid having to depend on a, a flawed heuristic to begin with. Right, right. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot there. So let me take um, uh, the theses one at a time. Um, I don't really think that the um, uh, discussion of fluency in uh, at least the way I conceive of it, um, I don't think it's tied to individual cognition. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think if it's based on a kind of mild neophobia, that would be a species characteristic that drives us in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the account of scientific progress that I ultimately give is filled with gaps and filled with idiosyncrasies. And, you know, in fact, I think that we need the kind of contingency account that I offer in part because the history of science is otherwise so gappy when it's compared to the seamless picture that's provided in the first paragraph of an intro physics textbook for high school students, say. Um, so uh, I think you could be quite Kuhnian in your conception of the forces that shape people's uh, beliefs. Um, and I think it's uh, a, a general characteristic of people that they're driven to use some heuristic or other to decide whether to accept an explanation just because they have these human characteristics. So, you know, it's nicely the sort of human temptation is is captured by um, Vonnegut in Cat's Cradle, you know, where he, he says at one point, one of his characters does, says, uh, tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. <laughs> tiger got to sleep, bird got to land, man got to tell himself he understands. And so part of his point there is that, you know, we have this drive to do certain things. You know, we sit and wonder why, why, why. But just like the tiger has to sleep and just like the bird has to land at some point, people have to tell themselves that they understand. They have to stop inquiring at a certain point and move. And, you know, William James talks about our efforts to reduce what he calls the peculiar unease of indecision. And so the stopping rules that we use for explanation, when we wear and when we stop explaining stump, something and decide that we're going to accept this, 
um, this finding or, you know, count this as the final explanation uh, depends as much on motivational factors as it does on, you know, purely cognitive or epistemic ones. Mm -hmm. So that was the one point uh, to respond to. The other one was uh, your point about, you know, how it, it might be possible to have kind of formal systems that uh, search for causes in the way that people do, um, but without the fluency heuristic, you know, so you could have a kind of formal system. I think that's actually right. I think that, you know, there's nothing nutty about that view. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, John Bickle and colleagues of, of his um, have published on the topic of, uh, you know, using those sorts of formal uh, searches of causal discovery. Um, in those cases, it, you know, it's impressive how much it helps to have at least some weak constraints on what can count as being causally uh, relevant. Uh, but they're really, if, if my view is roughly right, um, there's really no reason why there can't be uh, an alternative approach as well that um, uh, you know, works in a relatively automatic way through massive amounts of data looking for um, non-accidental correlations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned the, the ontic, the ontic view of explanation where, you know, a, a, a good explanation is, is basically one that's, that's true or, or approximates the truth or, or gets us closer to the truth. Um, and in a sense, you know, understanding is, is kind of a separate issue. If, if we get there through a sense of you know, an experience of aha or something, you know, fine. But if uh, we can light, we, the goodness of an explanation is distinct from whether we understand it or not. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, that hasn't been a particularly popular view. I mean, in, in my experience, or at least in my knowledge, um, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, I, as I recall, I think, um, I think Carl Craver at one point in in uh in one of his papers or books defended it and then he I think he later gave it up um but in any case it's it's thought to be somewhat controversial mm -hmm. um and so maybe you can say a bit more about the ontic view and and um and uh you know give it a run for its money Sure um yeah I think um, you know, there are figures like Craver who have defended it in the past. There's, you know, Salmon had a version of um, ontic explanation. Um, you can also see uh, a, a drive for a certain kind of ontic explanation in some of Hempel's work where, you know, he's sort of um, trenchantly critical of uh, psychological factors and explanation. Uh, I think a lot of the reason that ontic explanation hasn't been all that popular is that there's not really a difference in substance. There's a difference in where um, practitioners draw the line between what's required for explanation and what's not. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who don't like ontic explanation don't like it because they feel like explanation is essentially about understanding. Right. And, um, you know, understanding has to be in some way crucially involved in cognitive successes or intellectual successes. Um, as a matter of fact, when you even think about understanding something or what we mean when we say um, that, you know, we understand something, 
it seems almost uniquely associated with a cognitive achievement of some sort. And it's usually a success verb. You know, we don't usually say we understand something, uh, but I got it wrong. Right. You know, so um, what I would do if I were trying to include an account of understanding in my account of explanation would be simply to do what, um, say, causal theorists of reference did to description theories um, in the philosophy of language, which was, you know, to sort of start talking about the phenomenon of understanding as though it was uh, an account of reliable regulation of some sort. Um, Now, that would give you certain counterintuitive um, pictures of what um, understanding in ordinarily parlance um, implied, mm-hmm. uh, but it would have the virtue of including some aspects of understanding in a theory of explanation. So the Onic account, uh, and you know, as I mentioned, part of it was made current by uh, Wesley Salmon, focuses on descriptions of causes, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than the psychological factors that would make explanations intelligible or in some other way acceptable. You know, so it, it honors the reason that we pursue explanations, that we want descriptions that are true. And usually those descriptions are um, causal descriptions. So if it's one thing to say what an explanation is, and for that I like something like Richard Miller's simple definition. It's a description of underlying causes that are sufficient under the circumstances to bring about an effect. That's the way he puts it. Um, but it's quite another to say how we decide what explanations are the best or at least good enough to press forward. So the ontic account is an effort to, um, say what explanation is and is an explanation that orients you toward the truth on that view. Um, a lot of the factors that might contribute to that orientation may not be ones that are easily accessible to us or that we that come easily to us in understanding them. Some of them may be so arcane that even highly trained people couldn't track the detailed causes. Uh, but in those cases, you would still want to say that the things that you don't understand are good explanations for what happened, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the basic idea is that, you know, the ontic account captures the causal aspect of explanation, the idea that what you want is accurate causal descriptions, but it separates it from lots of the psychological issues about, you know, whether or not the explanation is intelligible to an audience. Mm-hmm. So so let me, uh, let me pursue this uh, in relation to a particular issue that's that's close to my heart in terms of philosophy of mind and and the so-called explanatory gap right um sure so uh there's the hard problem problem of consciousness um depends you know depending on who you who, who you're reading it's either we will never be able to explain it you know if you take a you know mysterian view or physicalism hasn't explained it yet if you just kind of take a explanatory gap kind of view. Um, but there is this idea that, uh, you know, qualia, conscious experience, uh, you know, either can't be or at least hasn't been 
uh, satisfactorily explained um, in terms of you know neuroscience or or some sort of physical physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so on on your view, is the question that people in fossil mind are kind of uh, all up in arms about is is that what is the problem in 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 terms that you would put? What is the difficulty that we face with explaining the mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to say that about consciousness, um, the array of views out there oftentimes have to do with this, uh, either mistaken views about what's required for scientific defense. Um, sometimes it's an uninteresting artifact of philosophical impatience. You know, so, you know, uh, you're presented with a, a, a qualia problem of some sort and assuming that you have to solve that problem in order to be a good physicalist, to give a, uh, you know, a thorough account of, or thorough ontological inventory of the universe, um, uh, where, you know, say qualia don't appear irreducibly or else I'm going to be a dualist. And I, I think that doesn't get the right pattern of concept formation in these kinds of disputes. I would rather postpone decision indefinitely about these issues than to take what seems to be um, a drastic metaphysical view, um, you know, in the short term. So, um, I, for example, I'd be prepared to say that um, we're cognitively bounded with respect to solving that problem before I'd say that um, uh, dualism is true mm-hmm. or that physicalism must be false because, because – um, of, uh, you know, some difficulty associated with uh, the explanatory gap. Uh, we face all sorts of gaps, and granted, not all of them are uh, qualitative. But in those cases, we have a little bit of um, intellectual modesty. And we say, you know, this is a matter of evidence. And, um, you know, the evidence isn't all in. And let's wait and see how things go. Um, we uh, might find increasing con- confirmation for physicalism as our neuroscientific theories improve and we know what the brain is actually doing when processing, say, sensory information that is associated with qualitative experience. Mm-hmm. I, I would rather take that approach than um, uh, take very seriously the pronouncements based on uh, thought experiments when you really don't know how um, deviations from the ideal affect the model. You, you do have an interesting discussion about inference to the best explanation, um, which is obviously related to your, your ontic view, the best one being the more true one, um, and uh, induction in general, and efforts, again, in, in philosophical circles to to um, claim that somehow IBE is a, is a special sort of of um, of uh, inductive inference or, or method of, of reaching an explanation, and you, you argue that essentially uh, inference to the best explanation is inherent in all induction. Right. So can you can you say say a bit about that? Sure. Let me just um, back up for a moment and say that one reason why I talk about I- induction in the way that I do at the point that I do in the book is that 
Um, I'm trying to argue against a certain textbook conception of how the history of science proceeded. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually that story is kind of an empiricist story of the accumulation of observations where, you know, confirmation is uh, a linear function of number of observations. And, you know, you get uh, an increase in the scope of a theory that gets stronger and stronger as time goes on. And that's how we landed in our current um, elevated intellectual situation. Um, and the story that I tell is a lot gappier. Um, and, uh, you know, induction is a, a much more explanatory uh, process. So one way in which I think induction is explanatory through and through is that when somebody is inclined to rely on inductive reasoning, All you would need to do is ask them why they think something like, you know, the straight rule is reliable or something like that. All you would need to do is ask somebody that in order to get some kind of answer that's largely explanatory, that's based on explanatory principles. So, you know, the person would be in a position to have to say, um, you know, the uh, as a sample size increases, if it's representative, then it will increasingly represent the distribution in the population. You know, that fact is not itself, um, uh, you know, a fact about the accumulation of evidence. It's based on theoretical information that goes beyond observation that the population, that the sample is representative of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is not a new point. And, you know, people like uh, Gilbert Harmon argued that in his 1965 paper on enumerative induction. He says that even enumerative induction is uh, based on uh, certain kinds of explanatory principles. Uh, So the reason that I want to make that point to make induction appear as robust as it actually is, is that anti-realists who argue against realism will oftentimes argue by saying that or implying that abduction or inference of the best explanation is some kind of additional exotic aspect of inductive argumentation. Mm -hmm. And my point is that there's nothing additional about it. It just happens to be about issues that are intellectually more aggressive. You're not just talking about uh, modest methodological issues about, you know, whether the sample mean is a reliable estimator of the population mean, um, you're talking about something much more robust and theoretical, but it's not an exotic um, type of reasoning. It's just ordinary old inductive reasoning that's based on explanatory principles. So let me, let me, uh, let me ask about the, your defense of this idea that, um, the spectacular rise or, or success of, of science um, since approximately Newton and Boyle and, and um, uh, people in, in that in that era, there's a there's a sense which you which you kind of alluded to in which the explanation is sometimes given that um, uh, you know it was it was a matter of following the scientific method, you know, sort of more, basically a more rational kind of process that, that led to this. And um, you argue that the, the best explanation of the rise of science um, in Europe 
um, at the time that it did in the in the um, 1600s is serendipity. Basically, is is that Newton got lucky. Um, he happened upon a a version of the corpuscularian theory, which you know, and of course, atomism had been around for thousands of years in some form, right? Um, since Democritus, right? And uh, you know, so 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 the idea of all of matter being made of little little tiny invisible items um, was was not in itself new, um, and it was resurrected as the corpuscularian theory. But there were particular aspects of the corpuscles that were close enough you know, by luck, uh, to the truth that they enabled Newton to come up with uh, or, or implement, you know, the, the laws that he did in a way that was, you know, reasonably also reasonably close to the truth. In fact, for many years, we did think that his laws were strictly true. Mm-hmm. Um, so can, can you say a bit about this alternative um, uh, explanation of of the success of science? Sure. Um, and, you know, I should say that um, my explanation doesn't deny that um, science progressed in part from, uh, especially during Newton's time narrowly construed, by a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, joyless hard work <laughs> um, that involved uh, close experimentation. I mean, that's what uh, the period of uh, the uh, air pump was about. That was what the the you know period of you know tests of the composition of the air was about. Um, the the construction of vacuums and so on. Um, but it is to say that um, that process from the late 1500s and later alchemy to Newton's time was theoretically very gappy, and that you can see. Uh, around the time of Boyle, for example, um, before Newton, that uh, Boyle's laws began to apply relatively well to what were the very late um, stages of corpuscular alchemy. You know, so, you know, you have to keep in mind that um, von Helmont, who was a... um, uh, a chemist and alchemist at the time. I don't know whether you could call him a chemist, really, and I don't think it matters one way or another. But um, uh, he was uh, one of Boyle's mentors, and you know Boyle speaks glowingly about him and all that he learned from him. Uh, but von Helmont was also an alchemist, and I think the sort of gold standard on this topic is Adams and uh, an alchemy uh, by. Uh, uh, William Newman, um, where he makes a a number of these uh, points about the relationship between alchemy, late alchemy, and Newtonianism. But it's it's important to keep in mind that, you know, people that uh, Boyle saw himself as having um, inherited tradition from held very peculiar views about the nature of corpuscles and the way magnetism works. So there's a famous passage in von Helmont's Helmont's written work where he says, you know, if some ne'er-do-well defecates on your doorstep, you can punish him by slapping a hot iron on um, the feces. And, And by the mechanism of dorsal magnetism, he says, 
um, render the impudence buttocks scabby. Right? <laughs> could you, so, could you, you translate know, um, that for me? You know, it's it's an it's an amazing passage. It's you know the expression <laughs> dorsal magnetism, like so much of the theoretical vocabulary of alchemy, appears nowhere else. Um, and so, one way in which the tradition leading up to Newton was um, uh, contingent, was uh, idiosyncratic, and um, you know very gappy, was that uh, you know there were rises and changes in social norms at the time that made it easier to coordinate vocabulary across what Kuhn would have called paradigms. So, you know, at about the same time, there was the rise of the Paris Academy. We were left with a tradition from alchemy where nobody coordinated vocabulary. There were Arabic versions of alchemy Mm -hmm. that, you know, weren't looking for the same things that the continental European versions of alchemy, then, you know, the Northern European versions of alchemy were looking for. Um, And they used different vocabulary. They had different purposes. But in the late 1500s, the version of alchemy that um, involved a corpuscular thesis characterized the items as approximately spherical and hard And so you could anticipate or predict certain kinds of interactions Um, at about the same time, you know, um, uh, Daniel Sennert was doing really interesting experiments that, uh, you know, sort of presupposed experimental design where he'd uh, run solutions through filter paper and then reconstitute compounds from the solutions. Um, And those, uh, you know, those things would precipitate out from the, solution and he could show that whatever it was that made up those now visible items inside the solution um were so small that they originally went through the filter paper mm-hmm. so you know there were there must be some physical properties of those items uh that combined in various ways uh to uh ac- according to certain regularities um, in order to make, uh, you know, uh, macroscopic objects. So the Newtonian insight that the world in the small was something like the world in the large along the dimension of, you know, roundness and hardness and its elasticity and so on um, played an important role when Boyle applied uh, laws to those objects and uh, created models uh, on that basis and then moving to Newton, the same was done. Okay. And I mean, Newton himself, of course, you know, sort of famously or, or notoriously did a lot of uh, alch- alchemy himself, from what I understand. Right. I mean, Betty Jo Dobbs was the first, I think, the first uh, serious scholar to explore um, Newton's alchemy. Um, and, you know, uh, and not just alchemy, but related uh theories of the occult so let me let me ask about the the realism anti-realism debate uh in in particular i mean the usual argument i mean you're you're defending realism scientific realism our theories are are true or approximately true and the one of the standard defenses for that is is obviously the success argument or or you know that that the truth of a theory is what explains 
its success, um, and then kind of hurling back at the anti-realists, it's it's like if if you if you don't think that the theories are approximately true, and that that's why the uh, the theories are and science itself is is so successful, you know, basically you make the success of science uh, a mystery. Um, so as I read your uh, your book, and I was trying to understand this the role of of contingency, and there's there's more to be said about that. Um, so I do want to ask that because you you give a number of you know, like six different ways in which um, you know hitting on the right theory is is contingent. Um, it's it struck me that um, by giving such a, a large role to contingency, among other factors. Um, you know, essentially, that's a way of saying that, you know, realism itself is, is you know, to be a realist is sort of a mystery. You're, you're, there's still a mystery perpetuated there, except now it's just a matter of we lucked out um, rather than uh, we have, you have no explanation, right? So, can you explain your version of the success argument? Uh, sure. I think, you know, there's a kind of, um, uh, you know, people sometimes try to understand uh, arguments for realism as though they're, um, you know, fine-tuning arguments of some kind. Um, but, uh, you know, I just think that the history of science has so many conceptual, historical, cultural, environmental you know, temporal gaps in it that, um, you know, many of the most important discoveries are going to necessarily be um, uh, idiosyncratic, uh, unprecedented, surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, so on the, on the one hand, those are the contingencies that I think people find uh, really shocking about large movements forward in the history of science that, you know, um, you know, that uh, Watson and Crick were really lucky to have had an X-ray crystallographer who happened to be in the Carroll right nearby, mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of contingencies may matter. But if your explanation is a realist explanation, there's one degree of freedom that's, much more limited, that's much more constrained, according to a realist, than, say, a constructivist or an empiricist. And that's that realists are much more willing to say that um, that contingency is constrained by the fact that the world rudely intervenes when we're mistaken under continued efforts to expose what the world is like. So, you know, the realist basically takes the observation that we often stub our toe in the dark and generates from that the fact that if you're working hard, experimenting, and your theories get good enough, it's not just not accidental that you land on some good theories. It's over time very probable that you will. Maybe not inevitable, but very probable that you will. Um, so actually far from thinking that the, that the success of science 
is, uh, you know, contingent, but somehow irreducibly accidental. Mm-hmm. If you combine uh, the generation of ideas that are rich and diverse through all of these different circumstances that are very contingent, psychological, environmental, and so on, mm-hmm. it increases the probability that you're actually going to land on a good theory. And um, when you do, it's less probable that uh, you're uh, not going to recognize it because the good theories will typically have instrumental, uh, good instrumental consequences that outcompete others. So, so is the role of... Um you know, contingency or serendipity. I mean, is that uh, the explanation there of of the sort of the historical geographical fact of, you know, when and where modern science kind of took off? And yes. then later on, it's like, you know, once you get the ball rolling, then, yeah, serendipity is never completely off the scene, obviously. I mean, people, you know, wave, uh, I think it was Hubble and Weisel, you know, we're looking at some neurons and one of them knocked a slide and, and one of the right. neurons kind of, you know, just went nuts. And this was how they kind of realized that it had a particular receptive field for, uh, you know, horizontal lines at a particular angle. I mean, it was completely accidental. Right. So those sorts of things happen all the time. But your your role of accident is more just, you know, we want to explain why was it that you know, at that point in time, several hundred years ago in Europe, you know, why did science take off then and there, as opposed to all the other places it very well might have, given the advances in mathematics and the alchemy and all these other things that were also happening in other places in the world. Is that is that correct? I think that's exactly right. You know, there were small um, effects in the history of science, like the kinds that you're, you talked about um, during periods that Kuhn would have regarded as normal science. And those have contingencies too, but the effect sizes are small. Um, if you're trying to explain uh, why uh, science took off when it did, the, what scientific realists call mature science, um, this goes back to um, you know, a really nice uh, 1980 paper of, of Richard Boyd where he's talking about um, – the sort of classic argument about what, what came first. Was it the reliability of scientific methodology or approximate truth of a theory? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the only defense that a scientific realist can give that's uh, systematic and plausible um, is one that uh, uh, cleaves to the, um, uh, to the contingency, the radical epistemic contingency of the history of science. Um, that for... Uh, whatever contingent reasons uh, we hooked on to an approximately true uh, account of the universe and uh, or at least our corner of it and that, you know, a really important area of science took off that um, in our efforts to unify apparently disparate domains then helped other sciences to do the same. Okay. Okay. Um, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I have, uh, there's a quick question about the book that I did want to ask was um, you do give a sort of an argument uh, or series of, of arguments against uh, against the anti-realist, you know, the general challenge that, you know, we, we can't know that the best theories are true. It's just a it's better, basically a, it's a metaphysical leap of faith 
um, that we don't need to make. And you make the point that, in, in a sense, the anti-realists tend to be uh, very selectively skeptical about, uh, you know, when they're criticizing uh, realism. So could, can, you, can you say something about that and the, what you call this, the seeping consequences of anti-realism? Sure. Philosophers of science, in particular empiricist philosophers of science, will oftentimes run under-determination arguments um, and uh, as a result, that uh, you know that those arguments highlight the possibility that you know um, uh, the appearances could have been produced by many other causes. But that's all too facile, mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to pay a price for being selectively skeptical about the things uh, about current theories that you're prepared to revise. So you know it's very difficult to be selectively skeptical, say, about um, radiometric dating as uh, certain kinds of uh, creationists might be, for example. Um, but if you're selectively skeptical uh, about one particular area, like radiometric dating, then you have to be skeptical about the reasons that we think that there are parent elements and daughter elements, uh, which raises questions about the nature of radioactive decay, and if you want to raise doubts about that, then you're also raising physical doubts about um, the basis of atomic theory. Um, so you would similarly likely have some associated doubts about the reliability of things like atomic clocks and the oscillation of a cesium atom. There are all sorts of seeping consequences to introducing a selective doubt, and at a certain point, it doesn't just affect what other sciences you think are reliable. You can't even explain why your toaster works. So if you are selectively skeptical as an empiricist about whether we have knowledge about unobservable phenomena, um, I think you can do that and that's fine, but you should be consistently skeptical about the item whose characteristics you're doubting and explore as many consequences as possible of the things that would be interrupted or the things that you would then come to doubt if you um, are believe that uh, um, radiometric dating is unreliable then what consequences does that have for say radioactive tracers that are used for cat scans that identify um, and locate tumors and would you be willing to go say to a vet rather than a doctor if you have a lump mm. Yeah. So, so you know, there are practical consequences to selective skepticism, um, as well as uh, just theoretically seeping consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to channel, you know, Bas von Frozen a little right, bit. And, right. Right. You know, I don't, I don't think something tells me he would, he would not be persuaded. Uh, for the simple well, he's, reason he's that smart he enough to not be immediately persuaded. Right. So. <laughs> well, he would, he would, he would not start with the toasters or the radioactive. He he would start you know from the very the very bottom stuff, and you know kind of say yeah the, that's the stuff you know the very basic fundamental you know unobserved or unobservable you know items that to which we make this metaphysical leap, and then he would say something like well you know we have these really great predictive theories and that's really all we need to do. Um, and then because and we because we can rely on those theories, we can rely on the other higher level theories about radiation and cat scans and toasters. So it's sort of 
I, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I think he or, or somebody who's defending that would, would reject the idea that their skepticism is so selective. Uh, that mm-hmm. might be true of, uh, you know, p- particular religious fundamentalists who don't want, you know, to believe in, you know, radio, radio, you know, carbon dating or something like that. The, you know, the earth is 8,000 years old or 6,000. So you're going to selectively say that radioactive dating doesn't work. But, but that's, that's not the way I don't think that Van Frozen or, or other anti-realists would, would, uh, would go. Well, I think that kind of reply is almost immediately beset with the traditional uh, conjunction problem uh-huh. uh, objection, you know, that uh, when somebody has a favored theory that's very basic about, say, you know, some uh, corner of the um, basic physical universe, um, you know, when scientists can join theories, Van Frassen says at one point they have to be very careful um, to make sure that the theories that they're conjoining don't conflict or aren't inconsistent. Um, but the fact is, you know, scientists oftentimes can join theories that they're not an expert in. So, you know, one person in one field may say who's in chemistry may conjoin their theory with a theory in biology or vice versa um, to find out something about um, uh, membrane biology. And they're not an expert in the other field. Uh, so it makes it look somehow um, very fortuitous that the unobservable stuff is hooked up in the right kinds of ways where it's not just superficially um, uh, conjoined at the observable level, but also that the predictions and explanations for their successful conjunction seem to come from a confluence of uh, the un- unobservables as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we are. I think we're, we're we are out of time now. Um, so I I do want to end with with a final question about uh, what what plans you have next. Are you working on another book or continuing in in a similar uh, similar vein of research? Or are you turning off into a new direction? What's what's next for you? Well, I'm I'm working on a um, uh, the Romanelle lectures, the Phi Beta Kappa lectures uh, that I did in 2013 that. Um, uh, should be published. And um, uh, I'm also working on a, a psychology of language book that's really like a fun book for everybody, I think, or at least I hope it will be, um, that looks at all of the really interesting and gripping uh, language phenomena in running speech that characterizes it just as um, an elaborate and delicate choreography. Hmm. Um, uh, so I hope to sort of capture some of the magic of uh, language by uh, framing the questions in that way in short and um, accessible um, phenomena. Hmm. Very good. Well, that all sounds very interesting, but we have to end for now. So uh, I just wanted to thank you again for uh, for having uh, taking the time to talk with, with New Books and Philosophy about your new book. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It was great. You've been listening to my interview with J.D. Trout. We've been talking about his book, Wondrous Truths, The Improbable Triumph of Modern Science, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.